Today, as Robbie said, we are going to close out the series that we've been in called Ancient Future. Uh, we build it around the Apostles' Creed because we've been trying to explore kind of the core essentials of our faith to understand what really unites us as Christ followers. You know, there's so much in our world today that, that divides us, kind of non-essential stuff that we get wrapped up in. But moving forward as a church and moving forward as a people of God, we want to kind of remain on a path that is really true to who and what our Christian faith really is. And we've been looking at the Apostles' Creed. And today we arrive at the very end of it. And there's some amazing words here. Uh, it ends by saying, I believe in the resurrection of the body and the life everlasting. I believe in the resurrection of the body and the life everlasting. Maybe more so than any other part of the creed, this is a statement that kind of initiates more questions and maybe causes more doubt, if we're truthful about it, from people who want to live with truth. So today we're going to explore one of those questions that a lot of people have chosen to ignore. What does our faith really teach us about the afterlife? In other words, is there really any hope and any reason to hope for life after we leave this earth? Or is this whole thing of a bodily resurrection and life beyond the grave, is that just kind of all hype? Everyone I have ever known has had questions about death, whether they're a Christ follower or not. It's like the boss who asked his employee, he said, do you believe in life after death? And the employee said, yes, sir. And the boss replied, well, then that kind of explains everything because yesterday when you left early from work to go to your grandmother's funeral, she stopped in to see you. <laughs> yeah. Everybody has questions about death. In fact, uh, Robbie asked you to fill out that tombstone. Here's what I'd like you to do if you would. Um, if you've completed that, uh, great. If you haven't, try to complete it real quick. And then I'm going to ask you, if you would, to pass those over to the end of your row. Okay, just pass them over to the center. In other words, if you're out here, pass it to the center. If you're out here, pass it to the center. And in just a moment, Rebecca and a couple others are going to come and pick those up from you. Uh, so you've got a couple of seconds here to finish up. Just pass them over to the center, and they'll pick them up. We'll talk about more uh, about epitaphs in just a moment. But I want to say something important here. The question about the afterlife is not just incredibly important. I realized this morning that it's incredibly tender. Believe me, if anyone is aware of that fact today, I am. Just about everybody in this room has been touched by death in some way. And if you have not, you will eventually. One thing is for sure, I'm absolutely certain about this. Everybody here is going to face death at some point. So it's a really relevant topic. Not an exciting one always, but a relevant one. And since death touches our hearts and our emotions and our feelings and our fears as maybe deeply as anything in the world, I want to try to cover as much information as I can. But I don't want you to leave here today just comforted. Above all else, we need something beyond just comfort. We need truth. And I believe if you kind of end up, you know, feeling hopeful, you'll sometimes end up just kind of wishful thinking. But today I'm hoping that you will kind of end up with more than that, and that is maybe with truth, maybe with that 
conviction in your heart that we are living for something. You see, 2,000 years ago, an event happened not, that not only launched the Christian faith, but believe it or not, it launched and produced the most radical change of view about the afterlife. It happened in that little community of Jesus. It's just a matter of historical fact. So what we're going to do is we're going to kind of trace back the history of what happened back then and try to pinpoint exactly what is it that changed 2,000 years ago so we can understand what they said, what those early believers believed, so we can decide for ourselves if there really is hope after this life. Let's talk about the early days of Israel's faith in God. You may already know this, but the ideas about the afterlife in the early days of Israel were very vague. I mean very shadowy. The Hebrew word for the underworld or the realm of the dead in the Old Testament is the word sheol. S-H-E-O-L. In the Old Testament, you need to know that there was almost no descriptions of what life in Sheol would have looked like. It was pretty close to non-existent. In fact, Psalm 6, the psalmist writes, Turn, O Lord, and deliver me. No one remembers you when he is dead. Who praises you from Sheol? And often, Sheol is simply translated as close as we can to the word grave. That's kind of what it means. Some of you may think about the book in the Bible called Ecclesiastes. It's kind of this unblinking discussion of life and death. If you've ever wondered, can I be a Christ follower and have a lot of doubts in my life? This is the book for you, friends. Ecclesiastes 9 says it best. It says the same destiny overtakes all. The hearts of people, moreover, are full of evil, and there is madness in their hearts while they live, and afterward they join the dead. Whatever your hand finds to do, do it with all your might, for in the realm of the dead where you are going, there is neither working, nor planning, nor knowledge, nor wisdom. That's kind of a downer paragraph, don't you think? In fact, there are people who are surprised that this passage and passages like it even made it into the Bible. But I'm so glad it did because the rabbis decided that there was such an honesty and a grittiness and a God, where are you quality to this writing that they said, you know, we need to put that in. That's real life. Now, I want to point out a really important, sometimes we uh, often overlook this truth. Very often in our day, skeptics, or people who don't necessarily believe in God or faith, will often say the reason that people cling to faith in God is people are afraid of the reality of death, and they really just want kind of a crutch or a ticket to the afterlife. So this is why people believe in something after we die. Many people think it's more rational or courageous just to face the fact that, listen, death is it. That's the end. You're worm dirt, and that's it. In fact, there's a famous poem by Dylan Thomas. You probably heard it. It says, do not go gentle into that good night. Rage, rage against the dying of the light. But I want to tell you today that rage, rage is a hard philosophy to live by every day. Like when your wife says, what are you going to do today, honey? And you say, rage, rage against the dying of the light. And she says, well, in between your raging, can you drop the kids off at school? <clears throat> I was talking to somebody 
week before last. And they said, I want to believe there was hope beyond death, but I was afraid that my desire made that belief a crutch. And they said, I figured it had to be a lot more rational to believe there's no hope beyond death because I don't want to believe that. But I want you to know today that a lot of times what I want to believe and when I want to believe something is true, guess what? It really turns out to be true. I want it to be true that the sun will rise in the morning. And guess what? The sun keeps rising in the morning. I want it to be true that my wife loves me. And guess what? Robin is crazy about me. I hope. <laughs> Truth is independent of whether I want it to be true or I don't want it to be true. And what's striking is that faith in a living God did not emerge in Israel because it was thought to be the ticket to an afterlife. Did you hear what I said? That's not why it emerged. The key issue for Israel was never about the afterlife. The key issue for them was, is there meaning and accountability and justice to this life? In other words, does the universe have a maker? Is there really anybody to rage, rage, rage against? And for all the pessimism that you find in the book of Ecclesiastes, this is kind of his takeaway in the last chapter. He says, remember your creator in the days of your youth. Not rage, rage against the dying of the light. He says, listen, remember God. Love God. There's another observation in Ecclesiastes, and this would haunt Israel, and it still haunts people to this very day. The writer puts it like this. God has also set eternity in the human heart. Every creature ceases to exist, but God has set eternity in the human heart. Think about this sometimes. Some of you know way more about this than I do because I'm not a super big animal guy. But one of the most amazing aspects of nature to me is that God has placed in animals particularly a kind of built-in homing instinct. And this homing instinct is incredibly accurate. For example, homing pigeons, I understand, can find their way home from places that they've never been on this planet so accurately that the ancient Romans and even guys like Genghis Khan used them. Dung beetles actually navigate home by the Milky Way. Salmon leave the ocean and travel to the exact spot on the exact river where they were born. They, they, they navigate, some of you know this, by magnetic waves. A gray whale will travel all the way to Cabo St. Lucas to give birth and care for her little family. And the odds of her migrating 12,000 miles to live in her exact home in Alaska is astounding, yet it happens over and over. Some of you are penguin fans. A mother emperor penguin will let the dad care for her little penguins for four months while she goes off to do nothing but feed her face. Doesn't that sound great? If you're a mom, doesn't that sound great? What are the odds that she will find her way back to the exact same spot with the exact same pigeon? But she does. So anyway, the writer of Ecclesiastes says, God has put this kind of homing device in your spirit. 
it's set in your heart and it whispers to you over and over and it says death is not the end. There is something more. This life isn't all there is. You're not quite yet home, but there is a home. Now over time, a teaching came from some in Israel. Kind of built around this. A prophet named Isaiah said to Israel, But your dead will live. Their bodies will rise. Let those who dwell in the dust, and when you see dust in Scripture, it's kind of an image for the Hebrews for mortality. That's why they talk about God, you know, creating from the dust. God remembers that we are dust. It says, let those who dwell in the dust wake up and shout for joy. Your dew is like the dew of the morning. The earth will give birth to her dead. So you remember the vision that Ezekiel had, the famous vision of the valley of bones. And it wasn't just bones, it was what? Dry bones. And God asked the prophet, son of man, can these bones live? And the prophet says, sovereign Lord, you alone know. I don't know. People don't know. And God says, prophesy to these bones and say to them, dry bones, hear the word of the Lord. I will make breath enter you and you will come to life and then you will know I am the Lord. This picture, uh, this word for this kind of belief uh, is what scripture calls resurrection. Now, this is a really important word because the belief resurrection was unique to Israel in the ancient world. Now, you understand, not every belief in the afterlife is necessarily a Christian belief. The belief in resurrection was not shared essentially at all, really, in the ancient world outside of Israel. Some in the ancient world, and some even today in an afterlife, you have friends, I'm sure, that believe in what is called reincarnation, that you come back as another person or as a creature of some sort. That's not resurrection. That's reincarnation. But resurrection says, no, you're coming back as you. So hopefully you better like you. <laughs> some people in our world today believe kind of uh, when you die that you are absorbed back into nature or absorbed back into the spirit of the universe, kind of like a glass of water getting poured into the ocean. And that somehow you will live on in the earth or in the breeze or in people's memories or some general way. Again, that's not resurrection. Resurrection means that God is going to bring you back to life as you in a body that has been transformed and that will not die. Not just that, it will be a world that has been transformed, and this is really important, to defeat suffering and sin and death. Now, if people don't understand resurrection, and this is really important, then what happens is people get very ambivalent about phrases, phrases that we use in our day that really the Bible never used at all. Like, their Bible really doesn't use phrases like, I'm going to heaven when I die. So let me put it in a form of a question. Let's put it this way. How many of you would say that you would like to go to heaven based on what you know and been told you would like to go to heaven when you die. Would you raise your hands? Okay. All right. How many of you who raised your hand would like to go today, like at the end of this service? <laughs> okay, we got a few takers. What's the deal with that? I mean, if heaven is so great, if it's really such a great deal, why don't we all want to just 
load up the bus and go today. You see, most of us have an idea of heaven that has been informed a lot more by images and literature in the Middle Ages and really in cartoons in our day, interesting enough. But I could do this whole message on an old cartoon series called The Far Side. Do you remember The Far Side? Wow, so awesome. I actually have one here, and he explains the difference between heaven and hell. He says, welcome to heaven, here's your harp, and welcome to hell, here's your accordion. <laughs> kind of sums it up, right? Yeah. Let me put the question even a little more different. Let me get all the way through it here. How many of you would like to wake up tomorrow and have the world set completely right? No more hungry children, no more terrorist attacks, no more broken families, no more drought, no more violence in the Middle East, no more racism, no more poverty, no more death. Not just that, not just the world would be set right. How about this? How about you would be set right? You'd speak truth all the time. You'd have courage and you'd live with love. You'd never have to think about it. You'd just be the greatest friend in the world. You'd do excellent work. Your body would be filled with energy. Every morning you'd be filled with more joy than you were the morning before. How many of you would love for that to be the case? If you would love for that to be the case, then you want a resurrection. <laughs> that is resurrection. See, some people think that we're supposed to want God to come and destroy this earth, the earth that he created, the earth that we love, and that somehow when he destroys it, he's going to take us up into the clouds and we are going to play a harp or something like that. Friends, that's not resurrection. The Apostle Paul wrote this in the letter to the Romans. For the creation waits in eager expectation and hope that the creation itself will be liberated from its bondage to decay and brought into the freedom and glory of the children of God. Resurrection does not mean that God is going to destroy his creation. Listen, he loves his creation. He made it. He's going to redeem it. He's going to burn off and purify everything that's not right. He's going to set things right. Now this is interesting. Nobody really, with few exceptions, in the ancient world, outside of little Israel, believed in resurrection. And to be honest with you, not everybody in Israel believed in this notice of, uh, or notion of resurrection. That God was going to give life back to the righteous and set this world right. There was a group of people at Jesus' day, a group of people called the Sadducees. They didn't believe it. In fact, the Gospel of Mark tells us, then the Sadducees, who say there is no resurrection, came to Jesus with a question. Some people have told me the best way to remember their name uh, and that they didn't believe in the resurrection is that they're sad, you see. I don't really think it's that funny, but it may help you, okay? It's sad, you see. They don't believe in a resurrection. Some, like a Jewish writer named Philo, agreed with pagans that there would be kind of an afterlife with spirits or ghosts or something, but he didn't really believe in a bodily resurrection. And then, 2,000 years ago, a community sprang into existence overnight. Now think about this. They were called Christians. Initially, they followed a man named Jesus, a teacher, a rabbi. Because of what he taught and how he lived, they followed him, and then he died. 
And apparently they thought that movement was done, but then three days later, it wasn't done. Quite literally, overnight came the most dramatic change in beliefs about the afterlife in human history. A guy by the name of Tom Wright writes about this in a wonderful little book, a book you might want to get called Surprised by Hope. He talks about how normally people's beliefs about the afterlife are very slow to change. But he says all of a sudden, he says we see a radical shift in beliefs about the afterlife in this little community. And then he goes on to describe them. I'm just going to run through them quickly. He says, first of all, there was a new consensus. Instead of this variety of beliefs about the afterlife that had been true for Israel's, like the Sadducees and uh, others, every one of these followers of Jesus in the first couple of centuries believed in this idea of resurrection. There was like a new consensus agreement. He says, secondly, there was a new centrality. Think about this. The resurrection became so central to their faith that if you were to take away the stories of Jesus' birth... All you would lose are two chapters in the Gospel of Matthew and two chapters in the Gospel of Luke. Take away the resurrection and you basically lose the entire New Testament. Thirdly, they had a new view of time. Those Israelites before Jesus who believed in resurrection believed it would happen all at once for all the righteous at the end of time. Now, out of nowhere, with no precedent for this, a group of people believed that the resurrection had begun with a single person, Jesus, and that it will one day in the future come for all who follow Jesus. This is why the Apostle Paul, for example, writes, but Christ has indeed been raised from the dead, the first fruits of those who have fallen asleep. And the idea of the first fruits is that they're the indication, the beginning indication that one day this harvest is coming. One day resurrection is coming. Fourthly, Wright says there's a new view of humanity. The resurrection, which only Israel had believed in, was now viewed as God's intent to redeem not just the nation of Israel, but to uh, resurrect and to redeem every single member of the human race. Every single person, including you and me. Fifthly, he says, there's a new view of God. He said, no one expected a crucified Messiah, and therefore one certainly never expected a resurrected Messiah. And I love the way he puts this. He says, Jesus revealed a God who would die for you so you could live with him. A crucified God would stand with you in your suffering, so one day a resurrected you can stand with God in God's glory. Lastly, he says, there's a new hope. Listen to me, if you've ever lost anyone, if you've ever suffered, if you've ever been afraid, if you've ever been in pain, if you've ever worried about death and how it will come and how, it will, uh, how you will experience, he says, listen to these words, friend. Let this wash over you today. Paul says in 1 Corinthians, when the imperishable has clothed with the imperishable and the mortal with immortality, then the saying that is written will come true. Death has been swallowed up in victory. Where, O oh death, is your sting? Or where is your victory? Where, O oh death, is your sting? The sting of death is sin, and the power of sin is the law. But thanks be to God, he gives us the victory through our Lord Jesus Christ. What he's saying is there is this homing instinct deep in your soul, and it is correct. One day, death is going to die. I hope I am around for that day.
God has placed eternity in the hearts of human beings because God wants to place human beings in the heart of eternity. Now let's talk about a few questions. One of the big questions people have for me is, what happens when you die? A lot of people wonder, like, when I die, do I, like, uh, get this resurrected body, like, immediately? Because, again, that resurrection, our faith teaches, is going to come when God sets everything right, when this world is renewed. So people ask, what happens between when I die and this resurrection? Now, I want you to get ready for the answer. Are you ready? Nobody knows. <laughs> Let's be honest. Nobody knows for sure. Paul, who taught about the final resurrection, also said that to be absent from the body is to be present with the Lord. We know when Jesus was on the cross, he said to the repentant thief, he did say, this day you will be with me in paradise. Now, it's really hard to build a complete theology around just one or two passages. Even though that final resurrection of all things is still in the future, we don't really know exactly what happens. There's a brilliant English thinker. His name is John Polkinghorne. He's a physicist, but he's also a clergyman. And he has a metaphor, he says, for that in-between time, between the time we die and we leave this earth and that resurrection time. He says, maybe, maybe when we die, it will be like God will download our software onto his hardware until the time when he gives us new hardware to run the software. <laughs> Nobody really knows for sure, but Scripture says to be absent from the body is to be present with the Lord. And one day, that resurrection is coming. And this leads people to ask questions like, okay, then what will death be like? When I die, what will that moment be like? Now listen, there's huge mystery here, and the reason it's mysterious is because none of us have experienced it. But I'm going to tell you an amazing statement that Jesus made, and some people just kind of blow right past it. One day in the Gospel of John, Jesus says, Verily, truly, I tell you, whoever obeys my word will never see death. Never? Later on, he says, they will never taste death. You guys know one of my favorite authors and spiritual thinkers is Dallas Willard. He died of pancreatic cancer. Not long before he died, he was interviewed. And he said a really remarkable thing. He says, you know, when I die, I think it may be some time before I know it. I never thought about that. But the more you think about it, the more you realize that if you're following Jesus according to scriptures and according to our faith, you're already standing in another kingdom, the kingdom of God. The eternal realm of God's presence is already here, and you're standing in that reality. And you, your conscious experience, apparently will just go right on. Death, however we may know it on this earth, apparently will not extinguish or eradicate your experience with God at all. I was trying to think of a very good illustration of this, and I didn't have a really good one, but I'll give you the only one I got. When I turned 50 a few years ago, my doctor told me that I had hit the magic age. 
And at the age of 50, men have to have a certain procedure done. <coughs> you can ask your parents later on what that is. And when I heard him say magic, and that's the words he used, you've hit the magic age. I was thinking like, oh, wow, we're going to Disney World. He was thinking like Jurassic Park. <laughs> okay. Very humiliating. And when I got into the procedure room, because they have to put you to sleep for this thing, they told me, the uh, anesthesiologist said, that I had to count back from 10. And I had been a little concerned because I really wasn't sure that my body was going to respond to anesthesia. I'm pretty, pretty strong-willed. And I started counting backwards. And when I hit one, I said, you know, I'm not sure that this is, stuff is working. And the nurse said to me, she said, Mr. Grimes, we're all done. You made it through fine. <laughs> Actually, I had gone to sleep, woke up, and I had absolutely no idea that it was over with. Very truly, I tell you, whoever obeys my word will never see death. That's probably the worst illustration I can give you. <laughs> but it's the best one I got. People ask, what will resurrected living be like when that day comes and the world is set right? Again, most people don't think about this. We think about it in cartoon terms. We think of it like people are going to be bored in heaven. Listen, Jesus' friend John says that we're going to reign with God. In one story, remember Jesus says, the master will say to us, well done, my good servant, because you have been trustworthy in a few small matters. Take charge of 10 cities. I don't know if it literally will be like 10 cities, but wouldn't it be great if God like gave you Honolulu or <laughs> Cancun or, you know, Bartow? <laughs> See, eternity is not going to be an endless church service on clouds with harps and palm trees and angels. That's hell. <laughs> how boring would that be? So how should you think about your destiny, friends? Well, again, I'm going to turn back to Dallas Willard, and this is what he says. He says, your destiny is to be absorbed in a tremendously creative team effort under imaginably splendid leadership, on an inconceivably vast scale, with ever-increasing cycles of productivity and enjoyment, and that is what eye has not seen and ear has not heard that lies before us in the prophetic vision. People even ask me sometimes, I had a lady ask me, what do you think my resurrected body is going to be like? She said, I've never liked my nose. Like, am I going to get a different nose? Some of you may be thinking, could I get Channon Tatum's body? Some of you ladies are honest and you're thinking, could my husband get Channing Tatum's body? It's interesting about bodies. In Jesus' resurrected body, his wounds are still visible. But listen, instead of being signs of defeat or death or ugly... They become signs of glorious love. Scars become beautiful. Wounds become glorious. 
And then this last question. If God has placed eternity in the hearts of men and women because he wants to place you in the heart of eternity, if there's going, if there's going to be a resurrection, what's the takeaway? Like, so what? At the end of Paul's first letter to the church of Corinth in chapter 15, where he gives the longest treatment of the resurrection in the Bible, Paul ends with these words. He says, therefore, my dear brothers and sisters, stand firm. Let nothing move you. Always give yourself fully to the work of the Lord because you know that your labor in the Lord is not in vain. Listen, nothing that you do in your faith is in vain, friends, because resurrection is coming. Do not just rage, rage against the dying of the light. Do not just see life as one bucket list that you're trying to fill up. He says, give yourselves fully to God and fully to other people and trust God and love people and serve people and do your work with God and for God. Live with God because God is still in the business of saving and loving and resurrecting people. So he says, when you get in trouble, when you're sick, when you are broke, when you are scared, when you are alone, when you're afraid, if you go through divorce, he says, if you fail, just know, stand firm. N.T. Wright says this, What you do for the Lord is not in vain. You're not oiling the wheels of a machine that's about to roll over a cliff. You're not restoring a great painting that's shortly going to be thrown in the fire. You are, strange though it may seem, accomplishing something that will become in due course part of God's new world. Every act of love, gratitude, and kindness, every work of art or music inspired by the love of God, every minute spent teaching a severely handicapped child to read or to walk, every deed that spreads the gospel, every prayer ever prayed, every gift ever given, every holy thought, every gracious word, all of this will find its way through the resurrecting power of God into the new creation that God will one day make. I believe in the resurrection and the life everlasting. I hope that you're not just a consumer of hope. I hope you will become a beacon of hope, a vessel of hope. And I hope that one day we will sit here and we will be together. We will be together with those that we have lost and that we have loved, who have served and followed God just like we try to do in that redeemed and resurrected world. And until then, we stand firm. I'm going to ask you to stand with me as we stand firm together. As we close this morning, we're just going to take about five or six moments, and we're just going to kind of reflect on our ultimate hope. I want to say, if you've lost anybody in this room who you love, if you're in this room and you've lost them, Maybe somebody you know or care about is very sick right now, as a matter of fact. Maybe you're facing a situation or a health scare. Maybe just the truth is you're just kind of terrified of death. I want you to know there's hope. There's a resurrection. And God wants to pour out his love and his presence and his comfort on you right now. So I want you just as we sing this together, 
And as we reflect on what some of you wrote about the legacy that you want to leave, I pray in some way those would just kind of meld together and we would realize that we're not here just spending our time idly, that we are moving somewhere. We're going somewhere. And now between this time and that resurrection time, we get to try to hopefully um, do the work of the Lord, love God and serve people. Lord, I just pray now that um, more than anything today, we will take whatever truth we can hold on to and whatever hope that you can wash over us. Pray especially for those who are mourning and hurting pray especially for those who are facing maybe uh, physical or health issues right now uncertainty of the future pray healing in their life I pray more than anything peace in their heart I pray God too that we could count our days and remember as the writer of Ecclesiastes says our creator while there's still time And remember that you've set eternity in our hearts. That little homing instinct that says, we're home, but not quite yet. Until that comes, until that wonderful, blessed, glorious, spectacular day comes, may we work to leave a legacy that will one day bear fruit. I pray that in Jesus' great name, is resurrected name. Amen.